How do you follow that? <laughs> Very quickly. Good morning. Um, if, if we get a chance to cook next Saturday, which seems to be the plan, um, I've been drafted to do it, and about all I've gotten the choice on is what we cook. So uh, my goal is to teach anybody who wants to come to learn how to make bagels, um, learn how to make uh, some zucchini bread probably, and we may, uh, we may slide in uh, a few other things uh, uh, as well. We don't have a lot of time, but we'll see uh, what we can do. This morning... We're dealing with Paul's anthropological terms. These class lessons are really hard to write. So by the grace of God and the help of Scott Riling and others, I've kind of only had to do one every other week on the anthropological terms. They, they take a considerable amount of time. I was not going to write this one this way this week. I was just going to crunch the final three into one because I was getting kind of tired of it. And Steve uh, uh, Taylor said to me, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, don't you figure people are getting kind of bored of these terms? And he says, well, I don't know, but I want to hear this one, and I want to hear it right. <laughs> so Steve's the reason I didn't go to sleep Friday night, and I hope you don't go to sleep this morning. I have a question for you. Where were you born? Um, this is the defective remote control. We don't have time for it to be defective. I think these batteries are in backwards, just looking at it myself. No, these batteries are not in backwards. Yeah, this thing's like really bad. Let's see if that makes a difference. Hold on, Steve. Maybe it was... It's the only one we have. Okay, well, we had a PowerPoint presentation. Um, See if this works. Ah, see, so smart. Ooh, he's got an engineering license in multiple states. <laughs> Let's start all over so Wayne doesn't have to cut this thing. This morning we're dealing with Paul's terms for uh, uh, the human body and different parts of what it means to be human. And I want to deal with the term flesh. Starting the class, asking you this lesson, where were you born? Okay, answer it in your brain. You got your answer? I don't know who here may have been born with me, but I was born... Okay, this is defective. I was born in Dallas. Yes, thank you. The music's supposed to be playing. We're supposed to have, okay, we're going to do better than this. Excuse me while I get frustrated. If I'm going to hand do it, then at least it's got to be higher. Wayne, good luck on cutting this little puppy. Okay, so where were you born? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I can tell you where I was born. <laughs> I was born in Dallas. Clearly not the Lord's favorite show. <laughs> Now, you may be saying, Lanier, I don't remember you on the cast of Dallas. 
Well, maybe you didn't see that episode, but they had to have a lawyer somewhere to get into that much trouble, didn't they? So I don't know where you were born, but I want you to hold on to the idea of where you were born because it's going to enter into our lesson in a little bit. We're talking this morning about flesh, and I'll tell you wherever you were born, you were born in the flesh in more ways than one. I didn't choose to be born in Dallas. I'm not sure if I'd have chosen to be born in Dallas. I think I'd have chosen Texas. And I mean, I I, I liked the Dallas Cowboys back when Tom Landry was the coach. I've never been a big Dallas Mavericks fan. Yeah. Um, But, but, you know, Dallas is an okay place. But my folks didn't ask. Did any of you get to choose where you were born? It just happened, didn't it? I mean, you were born. That's where you were born. Can you change it? I'm a lawyer. You come to me if you want to, and I can get your name legally changed. I can, Mike Riddle can do it. We can go down to the courthouse. We can file the paperwork. We can legally change your name. We can change Louis Miori to St. Louis Miori. <laughs> we can do that legally. But I cannot legally change where you were born. There's nothing I can do about it. You were born where you were born. Now, in that same sense, you were born in the flesh. And there's not anything you can do about that. It's just a fact. And so when we talk about being born in the flesh, I'm very concerned that we try to talk about it from the Greek perspective Because Paul's writing in Greek. So if we got out our Greek lexicon and looked up the word flesh, what we would see is the Greek word that we pronounce sarx. I've put it in parentheses in the Greek. English spelling of equivalence right next to it. Sarx. S-A-R-X. Now, you might know that word. Sarcophagus. Sarcophagus comes from two Greek words, sarx, which means flesh, and phagus, which means eating, flesh eaters. That's off of the old Greek idea that there was an actual stone that would eat the human flesh, and so they'd take dead people and put them in a sarcophagus so the stone would eat their flesh. You could open it up later, and it'd be bones. They were crediting that that flesh-eating stone. We know a little better than that now, but we still have the word. Or if you've got any medical background at all, you know all of the sark words in medicine. Sarcoma is a a cancer of the flesh, of the skin. Sark is a word that's made it into our language to some degree. But it's a word that Paul used a lot. Paul used the word sarks, flesh, almost twice as much as the entire rest of the New Testament put together. Think about that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, uh, the, the Johannine epistles, Revelation, the Petrine epistles, Jude. Paul used the word flesh almost twice as much as all of the others put together. And when we study flesh the way Paul used the word, sarks, the way Paul used the word, it's very difficult. It's a, a, a bit of a puzzle. Let me tell you why. Paul is using the word sarks and he's putting it all over the place. He uses it in lots of different ways, in lots of different meanings. He uses it 90 
two times as a noun. That doesn't count when he's talking about being fleshy and using it as an adjective. He uses it as a noun. And and he uses it in all of these different places. And so what we've got to do is take this puzzling problem that Paul gives and put it together so that it makes one clear picture for us. And that's our task today in class, to understand the way Paul uses the word flesh and then ultimately see if it makes any difference to us at all. So I know how to put together a puzzle because my grandmother does it all the time. If you go over to her house and you, the odds are in the study, you're going to see a, a partially completed puzzle. You can tell how long she's been working on it by how partially complete it is. And so what she does is, is first thing, she gets the pieces out of the box and she turns them all over so that you see the, the picture side of the puzzle. Make sense? Then after she does that, she always works the outside corners and does the boundaries and gives you the, the framework so that you can better put together the puzzle. And then she does this really creepy thing that I've never been a fan of and I give her great grief over. She I'm into sorting the pieces into categories, but she gets all these paper plates and she puts the different categories in paper plates and then stacks them. Hi, Judge. She stacks them together. And I think that's goofy and I think it's a mistake. And I've explained to her that's not the way she should do it. But my grandmother is 92 and does not take her instructions from me, you, or anyone else. So she continues to do it. I, I, you, you sort the pieces into the categories, and then the final thing she does is she fills in the rest of the puzzle. And since she sorts the pieces into categories in these plates before she puts in the rest of the puzzle, she always says the only reason she got the puzzle put together is because she used the plates. I explained, well, you could have done it another way, and she said, prove it. <laughs> and I don't have the patience to sit there and put together the puzzle the other way. So this has been going on now for 15 years. That's what we're going to do. We're going to use Grandmother Catherine's method of solving puzzles to solve the puzzle of Paul's using of the word flesh, our sarks. First thing we're going to do is sort of turn over the pieces and look at some various usages just to get an idea of what's there. Then we're going to put the framework together, the end pieces, the boundary. We'll look at how people other than Paul use the word. You need to use the word in the way that your culture would understand it, but it's also going to be used in a way that it came into your being. I used a word one time in a speech in New Jersey. Dr. Bob was with me, and it was a word that was perfectly acceptable where I grew up in Lubbock. It was a wonderful word. Dr. Bob said to me, he said, I have never in my life heard you cuss, and that you use that word is horrendous. And I said, what word? And he said, I'm not going to say it. I said, Bob, you have the worst language of any friend I have. Why aren't you saying it? He says, because it's worse than the F word. And I said, I said a word worse than the F word? He said, yeah, that's what it is. I said, it is not. I said, I grew up with that word. That word is fine. And he says, in New Jersey, it's worse than the F word. And I said, are you for real? He said, yeah. I said, okay. I thought he was teasing me. So I pulled up five friends. I said, just tell me. What's worse, the F word or, and I said it. And they were all, (gasps) so I don't use that word anymore. 
Now, I feel a lot better about it because David Fleming used it in a sermon a few months ago. (laughs) And I told David, I said, was that word fine where you grew up, Florida? He says, sure, why? I said, in New Jersey, it's worse than the F word. And he went white. He said, are you for real? I said, yeah. And I told him the story. And he's calling people, get, get on our internet feed. Take that word out. Can't you just see those people in New Jersey? Them Baptists aren't as stiff as we thought they were. Listen to their preacher cuss. But we need to look at how these words get used outside the framework of Paul to get an understanding of where Paul got his word from, why Paul was so comfortable And then let's put those words into categories. We're not going to use paper plates, grandmother, but we will sort through the words to put them into groups so that we can put together the fuller picture of the puzzle and see if it matters. So with that, let's start at looking at various usages and just sort of a sampling of of what Paul used the the word for. And and what I did to make it a legitimate sample... As I started, and I went all the way through in your, your, your handouts, but I won't have time to do that up here. I went through the Bible and just took the first time Paul used the word flesh or sarks in each of his writings so that we'd get an idea. So, for example, we can look at Romans 1, uh, Romans 1, 3 gives us the first time Paul used it, not chronologically in his life, But the first time Paul used it in the books that we read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, which God promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning, here's the verse, his son who was descended, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. You see? That's flesh. That's the word sarks right there. Paul uses it to say Jesus was descended according to the flesh. Now, if we go to Corinthians, the first time he uses it in Corinthians is in chapter 1, verse 26. And Paul says here, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, that's got flesh in it. Do you know where? This is a good literal translation, but you've got to look at that footnote too and go down to the bottom of the Americans of the, of the English Standard Version and find footnote two. Ooh, Greek. If that doesn't make you car sick, take your dramamine before you come to class. Greek according to the flesh. That's what the Greek literally says. But the translators want you to know what Paul means, and they think you've got a better chance of knowing if they translate it this way. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, is what reads in the Greek, according to the flesh. Paul's just throwing a word out there, sarks. We can go to 2 Corinthians And the first time we see this word used in 2 Corinthians is in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, I said 7, it's 17. Let's find 17. Paul says, he's talking about his failure to come visit the way he wanted to. And Paul says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this, when I wanted to come see you? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? 
ready to say yes, yes, no, no at the same time. Okay, we're just turning over the pieces to the puzzle. You don't have to get all of these yet, but just start chewing on them. See if you're surprised by any of these. Um, Let's skip a couple and go to Ephesians. The first time he uses it in Ephesians is chapter 2, verse 3. We start at the start of that chapter. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And here we are at verse 3. Among whom... We all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, living in the passions of our flesh. So we, we look at this sampling and we're starting to get a feel for why there's a bit of a puzzle. Paul can talk about the passions of the flesh. He can call the flesh worldly standards. But he can also talk about Jesus being descended according to the flesh. How do we sort through this? What do we do? How do we make sense of it? Well, to do that, we've turned over the pieces. What do we do next? We put together the outside of the puzzle, right? So the outside of the puzzle is where let's look at the different ways the word flesh was used before Paul, the, the writings and the, the, the ways that Paul might have been influenced as he learned his vocabulary just in the nature of his life. And so to do that, I've brought you an assortment of ideas and places to which we can go. The first one is uh, what we call the Septuagint. We know the Septuagint, right? You've been in this class long enough, you know the Septuagint is... Uh, Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul would have had. And you can read, and and the word sarks is used over and over by the Jewish translators of the Old Testament in passages like, uh, here is uh, uh, Genesis 2. It's the first time it's used. In Genesis 2.24, if you want to try and figure out your Greek, it's right here. S-A-R, and the X becomes a K when you add the A at the end. So, sarks becomes sarka for this form. Make sense? So, S-A-R-K. And what that passage says is, and the two become one flesh. Talking about a husband and wife. In the Old Testament, you read the word flesh Over and over and over again. It's the Hebrew word basar generally is what it translates. But it almost always refers to the body or a body part or something physical. It never seems to have a negative moral connotation. See, when Paul writes, Paul writes and he'll use it in a generic sense of talking about our bodies and physical. But Paul also writes and uses it like a very negative, like David Fleming did today. David spoke very Pauline in his sermon. Pastor David said, you know, at the end, he said, do you want to walk after the flesh or after the spirit? Those are very Paul terms. Paul is the one who draws that contrast. David speaks biblically from Paul when he says that. Paul has this, uh, this, this negative connotation he sometimes uses. But you don't find that 
in the Septuagint. So Paul didn't learn it there. Well, a lot of people say if Paul didn't learn it there, maybe we should go somewhere else. And so we go to some writings. This is a collection of them called the Pseudepigrapha. Um, Pseudepigrapha, we've talked about here some. Pseudepigrapha. It's two Greek words. Sued, which means, oh, some about a lawyer saying sued it just makes me feel good. Um, <laughs> sued. <laughs> Whew, that's a rush. Um, but that's not what this word means. This is in the sense of pseudo, which means what? False. And epigra, anybody ideas? Writings. Oops. That's like the airplane. Um, writings. So a false writing, these are folks who wrote books that were around in the time of Paul that claimed to be by someone else other than the real author. And, I mean, it's not like people were really fooled generally, but these were prominent books that Paul would have read and studied out of, and it would have influenced the way his vocabulary was. There is one called The Testimony of Judah, as in one of the 12 patriarchs. And in the testimony of Judah, we can read in chapter 19, verse 4, this passage. The prince of error blinded me, and I was ignorant. Ignorant as, or let's make that a little, as or like a human being. Ignorant like flesh in my corrupt sins. And it was a very negative connotation. It's not just found in the testimony of the 12 patriarchs. We find it, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Another reason they were so important. There's one scroll called the Manual of Discipline. Also called the Rule of the Community. And you can look in the Manual of Discipline, chapter 11, verse 12. This is what the community said. And this was a community that would have been around at the time of Paul. And probably representative of a lot of Jewish thought. If I stumble, if I stumble, the mercies of God shall be my salvation always. And if I fall in the sin of the flesh, in the justice of God, which endures eternally, shall my judgment be. See, the sin of the flesh, the flesh has got a negative connotation there. So Paul most likely got his negative connotation from these places. Did he get it from Greek usage? Probably not. Greek usage, uh, um, flesh had um, a real negative connotation. You know what we're going to do? We're not going to make it even remotely through this with the time we've got. We've got about 13 more minutes. So if you'll humor me and let me throw away the PowerPoint that's not working well at all. Let me deviate a little bit from our, our lesson for just a moment. And let's get into this in a little different outline form than it's been presented. And then next week, if Steve implores me, I will come back and finish the flesh stuff in a little bit more detail. But today, we need to make some time differences. So we're going to do our own PowerPoint here as we talk for a minute. Here's what Greek thought did. I think it's important we understand this because we run a real danger of thinking like Greeks. You can find the word flesh 
sarx over and over in Greek writing. And the Greek scholars thought, a number of the Greek philosophers, that your body is your flesh. It is your sarx. And your flesh is a prison house for your soul. Um, Greek pasuke. And the idea was that you have this eternal soul. Greek thought it existed before you were born and it will exist for eternity. And when you were born, this wonderful, pure, invisible, unseen soul came into your physical body. And your physical body, your flesh, holds on in chains, enslaves that pure, wonderful soul until you die. And it's released. This is the Greek thought that gave birth to the Gnostic heresies in the church that David was talking about this morning coming out of Colossae. Because the idea was, if indeed our physical body is evil, if indeed the flesh, if indeed the the, the flesh is bad, if the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak... As they understood that, thinking that that means the body is something lesser than that purity inside. Then how could Jesus ever become flesh? And that's where the Gnostics said it must have happened one or two ways. Either Jesus was a spirit that possessed this man Jesus and came on him at baptism as the dove came down leaving right at the crucifixion. And the fellow who taught this out of Ephesus is where he came from. The fellow who taught this even wrote and said, in fact, Jesus stood on a mountain and watched, the, the Spirit of God stood on a mountain and watched the crucifixion of the man Jesus in the distance because it had left. Okay, so either that's one solution is that Jesus never really was God in the Pleroma, the fullness that David was so wonderfully emphatic about this morning. Or maybe Jesus is a lesser God because the true spirit God is it's like if you cut lumber. Where's Al? Al's here. Al's a master builder. Okay, if I want to cut 15 pieces the same size of a 2 by 4 Al would tell me to cut the first piece and then use that first piece as a model for each of the successive cuts. But you never take the first piece and use it as a model for the second piece. Then take the second piece and use it as a model for the third. And the third as a model for the fourth because each successive one gets a little bit further off. And that last cut's not going to be anywhere near the size of the first one. Make sense? Same principle, same principle. And they thought God made a lesser God who made a lesser God who made a lesser God until finally the God was so lesser he's able to be human and that's Jesus. Paul doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. Paul doesn't get his idea of flesh from the Greek word. 
And the reason I say that is because the early church took a big turn. Do you remember if you were in our church history class, 70 A.D., the Romans, 68 to 70, they came into Jerusalem and they conquered the Jews. Remember? They destroyed the temple. And a lot of Christians were not around because they had heard what Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 24 and thought this is the time we were told to leave. And the Christians who were there, of course the Jew, in Jerusalem, these are Jewish Christians, would not fight. So the Jews that were left decided, time out, this Christian heresy thing's gone too far. Those are the people who fled in the face of the Romans, maybe why we lost, or stuck around and wouldn't fight, maybe why we lost. And the Jews got together and, at Yomnia and announced, from here on out, you can't be a Jew and be a Christian. If you become a Christian and you're a Jew, you're kicked out. And up until that point in time, the major thought leaders in the church were Paul, Peter, James, Thomas, the apostles who were all Jewish. But after this separation, from there on out, the major thought leaders of the church in early church history came in from the Greek thinking world. And so you've got a bunch of people coming into the church who think like Greeks. And you find this era of church history where they're reading flesh and they're thinking like Greeks instead of like Paul. And so they teach, oh, if you want to be holy, if you really want your soul and your spirit to soar, the answer is deprive your flesh. That prison house, you need to deprive. And then they'd misunderstand Paul where he talked about disciplining his flesh. Paul's talking about working out. Okay? But they turn it into self-flagellation. Oh, I've got problems with uh, 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 gluttony. Well, the answer to that's got to be um, beating myself to a pulp every time I eat. Oh, I've got a problem with, with uh, uh, lust. Oh, the answer to that's got to be uh, 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 self-mutilation in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. If your eye causes you to offend, pluck it out. I've got to tell you, you won't find teenage boys with two eyes. Okay, look, I'm just saying that what we've done is we run a very real risk as we look at words like flesh. We run a risk of running counter to what Paul was saying. Paul's saying this, you are a person and God made you with flesh, God made you with a soul, God made you with a spirit, he made you with a mind, he made you with a conscience, he made you with all these different terms that Paul can talk about. But you're the whole package. See, I was what we would now call a Platonist for years of my life. I had a knockdown drag out with my Greek professor over this because I was convinced there wasn't a physical resurrection. And he looked at me and he says, Mark, you are a Platonist. And I looked at him and I said, well, you're a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> and he says, it is not only the Jehovah's Witnesses 
who believe in the physical resurrection. It is also the Christians. And I looked at him, I said, well, it's not just Plato who thinks that you're only resurrected in your spirit. It's also me. He says, and you are a Platonist. <laughs> he was right. There is a physical resurrection. Oh, it's not going to be these same atoms. And I don't know what type of form it's going to take. But you, we will be flesh in that sense. Our problem is... We're looking for reasons why we have trouble controlling this thing that is not, that not, not, not this thing we're in, but this thing that's us. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with this thing? I can't figure out how to get this thing under control. And I'd love to say, well, it's not me. I'm inside. I'm trapped. Help! Inside this guy is some little soul banging on the eyeball saying, let me out. But that's not biblical. What's biblical is, I was born this way, in this flesh. It's part of who I am. And I was born fallen in Every aspect of my being. My mind doesn't work the way it should work. My body doesn't work the way it should work. My flesh doesn't work the way it should work. My conscience doesn't work the way it should work. My soul doesn't work the way it should work. My heart doesn't work the way it should work. You name any part of me you want. It doesn't work the way God made it to work because I am fallen. And I was born there just as much as I was born in Dallas. And the only solution is to be born again. That's the only solution. The problem is, in this world, I can't climb back into my mother's womb and be born again. This body cannot, this physical atom body cannot experience that rebirth and still be in this world. That's what our graduation is to the next world. In the twinkling of an eye, Things are changed. But that restoration in the next world isn't just a restoration of this. It's a restoration of this. It's a restoration of this. And the promise we have from Paul, the promise we have from God, is that between this time and that time, little by little, little by little, he's transforming me. And so we struggle against flesh and blood but it's not simply a struggle against flesh and blood it's a spiritual struggle because our victory does not come from self-mutilating the flesh the victory is a spiritual battle and a spiritual victory and I'd love to tell you I've got the secret we're going to have it at the cooking class next Saturday you eat this and you struggle with the flesh no more but I can't tell you that because if you are human on this earth you were born with that flesh you're you are that flesh not you're in it you are that flesh but with an understanding from Paul that it is the past it is not your destiny. And so Paul's able to use the word flesh in some very interesting ways that we will likely get to next week. But I want to send you home with this this week.
God did not mess up his creation. God made things perfect. Humanity messed up his creation. And if that's all there was to it, God would have ended it then. But God knew there was more to the story. God would never have allowed any of us to be born if there was not an opportunity for his destiny to see itself played out in our lives. And I don't care who you are and I don't care where you are. If you're struggling right now with sin in your life, then have I got a club for you to join. It's called us. The people who don't struggle with sin in their lives are the people who don't have the Holy Spirit in them. It's the Holy Spirit in you that's saying this is sin. And this is something that needs to be conquered. And it's the same Holy Spirit that gives you the power to conquer it that helps you identify it. So whatever you do, don't give up. Don't be frustrated. There are tools. There are ways that God works within us to help us understand and deal with this rebellious nature. And I long to share those with you. And I'm sorry I don't have time this morning, but if you'll come back next week, it is my desire before the Lord to do so. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is my prayer that you will reach out and minister to anyone within the sound of my voice that cries to you out of frustration, out of hurt, out of anguish, out of defeat, out of struggle. It is my prayer, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will minister your soothing love and mercy even while the Holy Spirit continues to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, we pray through Jesus Christ who in flesh and spirit set us free and offers in resurrection a resurrected redemption for us. Lord, we pray in his name who he is, supreme over all. Amen.